reality that anyone who approaches the Psalms sort of as a whole will immediately point out, which is that contrary to most of our expectations, whether, um, whether you're a person of faith, whether you're skeptical of faith, um, I think that this is a shocking reality to anyone, which is that in the Psalms, which serve as the songbook of God's people, serve as the you can call it sort of the biblical hymnal, right? If, you're, if you've been around church for a while, these are, this is the, the anthology, the collection of the songs and prayers that are divinely mandated by God, collected over centuries. And what anyone approaching them will point out is this stunning fact that depending on how you account for it, somewhere between a third and 50 or 60% of these, the, the overwhelming majority of them, are um, complaints, are protests to God, are things that don't sound like nice, rosy reality, but is someone crying out, as you just heard read, how long, O oh Lord? Where are you? Why is life going this way? How did, thing, how did I end up here? Where, where, where are you even, God? And, and the category, the, the genre that this has classically been given is this idea of lament. That lament, when God's people open their mouths both in prayer or in worship, that what comes out of their mouths more than anything else is sort of a, a shaking fist at God. That's shocking. Like, I still... Right, I've, I've, I've been in the Psalms a, a good bit as someone who teaches the Bible and, and in my own personal uh, spiritual life with God, the Psalms have become ever increasingly more, and yet it never doesn't sort of shake something in me to say this, to realize this, to wrestle with this again. That man, lament is the overwhelming preponderance of the songbook of God's people. And it's so important um, that that this is, is what the Psalms are, because the Psalms, the function that they're meant to have in our lives, is they're meant to shape how we view God. They, they shape and form, right? Like all of Scripture is meant to shape and conform us into the image of God, into who God intends for us to be. It's meant to shape and conform us on the other side of the, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's meant to form us into the image of Jesus. And one of the things that we said a couple weeks ago is that often in Jesus's moments of greatest distress or moments where we see Jesus relating to the Father, the Psalms are what are on his lips. And no surprise, many times when those Psalms are on his lips, guess what kinds of Psalms they are? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, it was the one who ate bread at my table who has betrayed me. These are things that Jesus says, but he's actually quoting Psalms. He's actually using this thing, this songbook that has formed him in these moments to express himself to God. One of the most significant conversions in, in the history of Christianity, you could argue in the history of the world, insofar as Christianity has formed so much of the world, is the conversion of, uh, who went on to be this North African bishop named Augustine. Um, Augustine, but if you're sophisticated, you say Augustine. Um, and uh, Augustine was kind of a, um, I won't tell Augustine's whole story, but he was, he was like this very talented, gifted, but kind of like wild man before his conversion. Um, 
the image here is, you know, of a, I don't know, of, of sort of a, a party boy athlete or something, or a pop star, or someone who's, um, you know, going to go make a lot of money on Wall Street or, or something, and, and also sort of enjoys all the spoils of that. That's kind of the image of Augustine. He's this incredibly gifted young man, but he's used it to live this wild existence. And what happens is he goes through this very radical conversion where God kind of shows up in his story. It's, it's a lot like if, if you know the, the story of, of Paul, who was Saul, where God quite literally like kicks him off a horse and then says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's, Augustine's conversion is similar in that God sort of speaks very directly right in the middle of his story, and Augustine goes through this radical conversion. One of the interesting things is if you read biographies of Augustine, what Augustine did is before he then went out into the world and began to do what we see a, a often in church history, which is these, um, these people who had used their gifts, their influence, their relationships for you know, selfish living, then sort of eventually turn them and become incredibly impactful for God's purposes in the world. Before Augustine sort of goes out in the world, he very intentionally goes through this time of withdrawing. Again, this is where he's very similar to, to Paul. Paul does the same thing, is that Saul, when he's kicked off his horse, doesn't like immediately go out and start evangelizing. There's this time, there's this season of slow formation, of beginning to understand the things of God and being formed into the image of Christ and then sent out. For Augustine, that time was largely caught up in him just massively immersing himself in the Psalms. He's just reading the Psalms and praying the Psalms. And, and here's what uh, we learned last week that Pastor Rich has a favorite Psalms commentator now, and it's James Mays. And this is what he says about that. Is he says, for Augustine, it was a time of preparation for a different life, of initiation into a new existence, a period in which thought, habits of thought, customs of practice, and feelings. So do you hear that? It's all of those things. It's thoughts practice, behavior, and also his emotional life, his feelings about self, about others, and the world had to be reconstituted, had to be totally reshaped. As part of that transformation, he was learning a new language. And so he said the Psalms as his words, let his feelings be evoked and led by their language, spoke the words that resonated in his own consciousness in concord with those of the Psalms. Isn't that interesting? This, this was one of the primary ways that Augustine went from this wild playboy into who we now know as one of the most significant theological thinkers in the history of the church was this deep immersion in the Psalms and he let them become his words. What feelings they evoked in him towards God, he allowed them to evoke to reshape even his heart, even his emotional makeup. This reminds me so much that we can't say enough in this series that the Psalms are not primarily written to be taught. Right? The Psalms are not primarily, the usage of them is not primarily what I'm doing right now. Which is, right, I'm, I'm going to walk you through and give you some background on Psalm 13 and what's going on here and all of that. That the Psalms, we see this in the early church. In the early church, if you look at, um, if you look at the book of Acts, if you look at the things that the Apostle Paul writes to the early church, there's often mention that one of the things that they would do is that they would 
pray the Psalms, or that they would bring a Psalm with them into the gathered people of God, which I think is a, most scholars would say is a way of saying, as you're engaging the Psalms in your own personal devotional life, when something deeply resonates with you that you think would be beneficial to the church, bring that with you on Sunday and share that um, in the public gathering. And so everyone brings a Psalm or a hymn or spiritual songs, right? These are the things that are, that are uh, the Spirit is using to sort of reform a community, that that is the primary usage of the Psalms is that they're to guide our own understanding and our own dynamic relationship with God. And so where we're going to end, I'll give you a little preview. Where we're going to end our time this morning is by actually giving you an opportunity to, to experience that, to feel what that feels like, to allow a Psalm to actually inform the way that you pray and engage God. And it's way more simple than maybe it sounds, or it's, it's way more simple than maybe I'd care to admit, which is just, you just read a couple verses of Psalms, and, and where the Spirit allows that to take you, you just pray that back to God. And we see that that's what Augustine did. We see that that's what's happening in the early church. And we see that through, you know, thousands of years of church history. That is the role that the Psalms have played for us. With that in mind, I'll just say one more thing about about specifically the lament psalms, is um, there's, there's so many different ways to get at this, but, but one of the things, one of my greatest hopes always when we come back to the psalms is that particularly our engagement with the lament psalms will not just feel like a, hey, this is what to do in an emergency. Like when you have an emergency, oh, thank goodness that there's a couple of these psalms. In some ways, I'm like, there's too many of them for that to be the sole purpose of them. Like, maybe throw like five or six in there if it was like, then when things get really bad, um, this is, you know, here's where you can finally go in the scriptures, but in general, you know, things are pretty rosy. Is the sheer number of them in the Psalms ought to be this constant culture-shaping reminder to us as individuals, but I'm talking especially corporately as a church, like I'm talking to Jacob's Well right now, is the laments and how many of them there are should make us a culture where being at the end of your rope is normalized. Where going through real stuff is normalized. Where having like real pain and loss in your life is normalized. Not in a way that we say it's normal like, like it's normal like it's good. <laughs> I'm saying, and I don't even mean you should come and you should make up something that's hard even if you're not going through something hard. I'm saying by normalizing these things, we actually deal with, with reality. Like we're, we're, I, right, one of, one of the unique, I'm so aware of this this week, is one of the unique things about the particular role that I play in a community like this is I stand up here and I can scan this room and I, I can see the burdens because I, I know those burdens and I know what's been going through. And yet the average person, right, you mentioned to, got some new people here today, right? Like most new people walk into a church and the overwhelming impression they get is everyone here is doing pretty well, right? Like we all get fairly dressed up. We're all, <laughs> oh my God, like, how are you, right? Like, we all do that, and we're all really good at it. And I'm not saying that that's fake, right? Because when a group of people who love each other come together, like, even, even a, right, like, the most loving, caring family, when you first see each other, you're probably not like, 
oh my gosh, let's just weep into each other, right? You're like, hey, how are you? How are things? And then as time goes by, I was just with my sister, right? And, and this is how it goes. It's like, everything's great the first two days. And then you start asking each other, so how are you really? So how are you, right? And then all of a sudden the tears flow and there's like, oh, that's right, we're all carrying so much. So I'm not saying, oh, we have to be, you know, weeping on each other's shoulders all the time. I'm just saying that the more that we can embody what the lament psalms are trying to model for us, I just think... One, the safer we'll become for people who are hurting. And two, let's be real, that's all of us. And so the more that we can bring our actual true selves into a community like this, right? Bring that to your care group. Bring that to a discipleship course. Bring that into an engagement with someone who says, hey, how was your week? And you can say, hey, I know this is really heavy, but since you asked, do you really want to know? Because something happened this week that's really hard. Um, I w- let's become... I think we're becoming that church. I don't want to say let's become that as though it's something totally different, but I know that every single community has ways to go in that. I I think that we've made good steps in this and why we're doing things like care group and all that stuff. But I think that one of the things that lament also do is the posture. It's it's the, the Psalms are like a good, wise, gentle friend in the midst of suffering. Because you know what they do so often? They ask really good questions of us. They express maybe what hurt and pain and loss feels like in ways that, that maybe we just don't have language for. And then you know what they also do? They don't, they're unembarrassed by reminding us that there's hope. And I think that that's what like a really good friend does, is that they ask really good questions so that they mostly just sit there and listen. A really good friend often will articulate our pain Right? Like, even if you've done any sort of counseling training at all, a lot of what you're trying to do as a counselor is just help that person express what feels inexpressible to them. So you give attempts to say, feels like God is far off. Yeah, that's what it is. Feels like God has turned his face from you. Yeah, that's what it feels like. There's a kindness, there's a love in that. And then also to unapologetically say, hey, God is still who he is. I know it doesn't feel like it right now, but let's, let's remind our souls of some essential things about who God is in the midst of the storm. That's what the laments do. And I would just love for us to increasingly become a community where that's normalized, right? Where that's normalized. Listen to just one more. Um, my favorite Psalms commentator is this guy. Um, Walter Brueggemann. Um, just the best name in biblical studies. It's long, but... but Hear me now. This is a great summary of what I'm trying to say. It's experiences of being overwhelmed, nearly destroyed, and surprisingly given life that empower us to pray and sing. It's experience of life that lie beyond our conventional copings that make us eloquent and passionate and that drive us to address ourselves to the Holy One. In the Psalms, we find the voice that dares to speak of these matters with eloquence and passion to the Holy One. Psalms offer speech when life has gone beyond our frail efforts to control. Love that. Psalms offer speech when life has gone beyond our frail efforts to control. This means that the agenda and intention of the Psalms is considerably at odds with the normal speech of most people, the normal speech of a stable, functioning, self-deceptive culture in which everything, I love this, must be kept running young and smooth. Right? That's what the Psalms do. They say, no, there's pain in this room, there's hurt, there's loss in this room. And we can name that and we can bring that to God. And so let's do that now. Psalm 13.
Psalmist says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me? Well, actually, let me start even higher than that. See that little superscription there? Mine says, to the choir master, a psalm of David, right? To the choir master means that this almost certainly originally had some musical notation to it. Um, it, wasn't just a, it wasn't just written words, right? We're not just in poetry. We're probably in song lyrics here. So to the choir master, which check this out. This psalm is a lament. It's pretty raw. And this would have been sung in worship. It's pretty interesting, right? Like lament is worship. I think sometimes we think, oh, I have to lament in order to be able to worship this Sunday. I got to get all the bad stuff out so that I can actually say the good stuff to God. And this says, no, 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 to the choir master, to the worship leader, right? To the liturgy leader. Here's what you're going to sing on Sunday. How long, O Lord, how long have you forgotten me forever? Right? Like, we don't, there is something really interesting about the fact, like, we don't sing songs like this. Um, and I don't mean we, just at Jacob's Well. I mean, like, find them. Find them out there in the American evangelical world. Right? We don't think of this as worship. We think you've got to get through this stuff in order to be able to do the happy, clappy kind of worship. Psalm of David. Um, that could mean that this was written by David. That's kind of where, where, where I tend to fall. Other scholars would say that some of these are written as reflections on the life of David because he was a known songwriter, and so this is sort of like in the spirit of David. Um, I'm inclined to say, yeah, let's go with David wrote it. Seems to be the most obvious way to take it. Okay, now into it. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? What's the repeated, re repeated refrain? How long, right? How long? The, the literal words there um, are, uh, the literal words are until where, which, which in the original language in, in Hebrew ends up being something like how long, until where. But I, I kind of love that literal trend. Until where? Like, where does this end? Where are we going? Like, un until, like, are we there yet? Is this question. Have you ever been in that place? Where time begins to be this oppressive thing where you're like, like, when does this end? Like, when is this, when is this over? And that can be, um, right, that can be in a moment of, of pain, right? You're going through some kind of pain and you're just like, just tell me when it's going to be over. Pain has this unbelievable, uh, doesn't pain have this really interesting way of like narrowing your focus down to just the pain? It's so hard to see beyond pain, isn't it? Like it's the only thing that you can think of. You get a little, um, <laughs> some of you know, I would go through this crazy sty thing where I've had a sty that goes back and forth in my eyes. And man, the amount of time I've thought about that, that, that stupid sty <laughs> the last three weeks of my life, it's like, it can, it can feel like, and that's like such a minor thing, right? Some of you are going through like excruciating, like blinding pain because of various ailments or, or whatever. Your, your body's just rebelling against you. Those can be how long moments. Loss, my sister, speaking of my sister, um, I was with my, my sister and her family last week, and um, uh, some of you are new. Um, so I, my mom died about a year and a few months ago now. And uh, worst loss that I've ever been through. And, um, but, so I was with my sister, and, and one of the things that she said that was so profound to me that Sarah and I, my wife and I, have said to each other in some ways is, and this is really the first big loss that I've gone through in my life, and the, the, um, 
the time element of it, that like it's forever, <laughs> in, in, in terms of our earthly existence, right? That the loss is like, yeah, that's it, is, is the hardest part. It's like, until where? Until where, oh Lord, right? I hear some yes, right, from people I know have gone through loss. Like, it's such an interesting part of it where you're just like, that's, like, that's it? That's what's being expressed here, right? That level of rawness. And notice, what that's not met with is a bunch of theological facts. Well, um, you know, well, pain doesn't actually last always, and well, no, no, it's allowed to be expressed four times. How long? How long? How long? How long? One of the things that I want you to see here is, or one of the, the sort of um, approaches that I want you to have here to a psalm like this is keep in mind, right, we're, we're going to end by working through the psalm and turning it into an individual prayer in, you know, five minutes. That's not how most songs are written. Most songs are written as a reflection on some period of time, right? You write a song, uh, the sort of songs that, you know, parents dance with their child uh, to at a wedding, right? Butterfly kisses, right? Like whatever song that is, right? Those types of songs are a reflection on the entire existence of that child. Do you get what I'm saying? That's such a weird, that's not the example that I was going to say, but that, do you get what I'm saying? Like, you baby, right? And then it's like, and now I'm seeing you in your wedding dress, right? Like, we're covering, you know, like, we're covering a time. Think of a romantic song, right? Is a reflection on, on a whole scene. I remember when we fell in love and now you broke my heart, right? Like, there, I don't know why all these are country songs, but... Um, <laughs> But, right, like, they're reflections on a season of life. And I want you to hear here that the movement of this psalm, I don't want you to feel like, man, it only takes, what, 25 seconds to get from how long to, but I have trusted in your steadfast faithfulness. It takes 25 seconds to get there in reading this. It might take 25 years to get there in life. Hear what I'm saying? This is a reflection on a season of suffering that felt four times over, like how long, how long, how long, how long. This is the real stuff of life. And it's saying, this is worship. If there's anything that I want you to leave here with this morning, uh, actually, let me give you two things. I really would love for more of you to be praying the Psalms. I really think that that's a practice that could serve us well as a community. The second thing is I want you to be completely and utterly convinced that grief, doubt, loss, pain can coexist with faith. That doubt, grief, loss, pain, suffering, anger even towards God can coexist with faith. That there are seasons of life where that is the substance of faith. Because if the lament psalms are anything, they are taking that rawness of the pain of life and it's directing it to the only place that it can, that, that it can possibly be directed to with any kind of hope. Okay? And so even though it's shouting back at God, it's at God. So it's a tether. 
It's a tether in the storm. It's a, it's a tether in the blizzard. It's something that keeps you tied, even though all around you, you're saying, man, I don't know where to look to see God. I feel like he's nowhere, but I'm going to shout, and that's my tether that keeps me close to him. Right? And the fact that we have a God who is gracious enough, gentle enough, frankly, strong in himself enough to say, yeah, that's enough right now. That is praiseworthy. I think that that's why this is worship. Because it says, hey, some people in your community aren't going to be ready this Sunday to, to sing the song that we, we, even we just sang, right? All my life you have been faithful. There's people who walked in here this week and said, this week didn't feel like that. And so it says, yeah, you get to, you, this is worship too. Because you're in how long? How long? How long? How long? But it's worship because in the same way that all my life you have been faithful is directed at God, how long, O Lord? It too is directed at God. You know what worship is? Worship is literally, you know what that word means? It means assigning worth to something. That's what worship is. It's assigning worth. This is why idolatry is the opposite of worship of God. Because idolatry worships something other than God. Now we say, I don't, I don't worship anything, right? Like, I don't worship, right? Like some of you come from some Eastern traditions where you do. Maybe you grew up with shrines in your home, but many of us didn't. And so you're like, I never grew up worshiping anything. No, but you assigned ultimate worth to something. Whether that was success or attractiveness or money or whatever it was, right? Like we assign ultimate worth to something. Now think of a season of pain right? You go through one of the hardest things in your life. The first person you turn to in that, even if it's turning to them in anger and frustration, the first person you turn to, guess what you're doing? You're assigning worth to that person, right? You don't, you don't call your dry cleaner on the worst day of your life, right? Like you don't call, you don't roll down your window and say, hey, this is what I just went through to some stranger. No, no, no. You call someone who has a role in your life that is significant enough that you entrust that hurt and pain to them. You assign worth to them in that moment because of the worth that they have already established in your life. And so, yeah, God wants our pain to ultimately be turned into praise. But that's a process and sometimes just the pain is what he wants in that moment because that's all you got. Notice what's really interesting in these verses too is David, the psalmist, isn't doubting the existence of God. Do you see that? How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? That's not atheism. It's not atheism. And one of the interesting things is in, you know, in walking with people in seasons like this, um, I think of some folks who have been through stuff this, this last year, um, who I won't look at right now. Um, very few of them were like, I'm not sure that God is real. Now, now you might go there. I actually think the more common response of someone who's been walking with Jesus for a while is, man, I just feel like he is, he is nowhere to be found. Do you hear that? Still in existence, 
just not near. What the psalmist is struggling with here is not the existence of God, it's, it's the lack of nearness of God. It's the lack of proximity. It's the lack of, uh, maybe more to the point, it's the lack of attentiveness of God. That's what hurts. Not, oh my goodness, maybe atheism was right all along. It's, ooh, maybe I was wrong about the character of God all along. That's what gets really scary in suffering. I can tell you that resonates with my own experience of suffering. You just go, oh man, do I have to rethink some things about who God is because he feels afar off, right? And why would someone be afar off? Someone would be afar off either because they can't handle the weight of the suffering that you're going through, right? Like this is part of what stinks about being in, in grief or loss or suffering. Is people don't know what to do with you, so they back away. Um, is God doing that? Or they've never been through something like this. And so they don't have a category for it, so they're just humming, humming, humming. I, I don't even know what to say, so, uh, right? And so there's that distance, right? So those are the two questions we're presented with. Is this too much for God? Has he never been through anything like this? And then there's a third one that's unique to God, which is, man, it feels like he's the person that could have done something about it, which that's the hard one. That's the really heavy one. Must I take counsel in my soul, have sorrow in my heart all day? That counsel in my soul is a, is a really interesting concept. It's sort of this, do I have to, is my own inner wrestling all I have right now? Like, I could really use a conversation partner right now, not just like an embodied conversation, but like, God, I really need some answers here. And yet all I have is my own, like, how do I fit this together? How do I make this work in my worldview? Is that all that's at my disposal? Sorrow my heart all day. How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? This is a way of saying, I didn't bring this on myself. Like, my enemies are going to say, ha, ha. They love Jesus, and their lives were, were terrible anyway. That's ridiculous. Jesus didn't show up for you. He says, God, are you going to put your reputation on the line in this way? This is raw stuff. Worship to the choir master, right? There is a kind of, it's worth saying, there is a kind of suffering we bring on ourselves, and then we blame God. <laughs> so, there is, like, that's a massive caveat. That is not what we're dealing with here, right? Like, there are psalms where David is kind of like, don't destroy me, don't destroy me, don't destroy me. I know I brought this on myself. Please don't come after me. This is not that moment. This is, this is actually a righteous suffering. He has not brought this on himself. Two different categories in the psalms. Um, and so, yeah, like, let me just chase that caveat for one second. It's like, there is a kind of, oh, should I say that? Uh, this isn't fully processed, so I actually think that it's often that suffering that we've brought upon ourselves that, that can more easily lead to atheism, where people go, oh, God isn't real. And you're like, no, nah, you just kind of want to do your thing. Anyway, I'll have to think about that. But, um, but so many times, that's where, that's where someone goes. That's, that's where atheism comes from, is, no, you, you, anyway, that's not this sermon. Um, Moving on, consider and answer me, O Lord, right? That's, that's what the psalmist desperately wants. Consider me. Literally, the phrase here is, is more, more directly, look at me, look at me. Look in a way that you're going to see what I'm going through and probably do something about me. Just look at me. 
Answer me. Don't be silent anymore. Lift up my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death. This is someone who's so aware that their life comes from their nearness to God that he's saying, man, if you are far from me, what, what's it going to become of the vitality of my own soul? If you're, if you're far from me for long, I'm just going to crumble in on myself. Lest my enemies say, here's those enemies again, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. Who are these enemies? Um, right, we're dealing with David likely here. So these could be literal enemies, right? Like he's the king and, you know, heavy as the head that wears the crown kind of thing. Like, yeah, people probably are coming at him. But I think the reason why we don't get very many names in the Psalms or we don't get many specific is, is I think that the enemies also stand in for a lot of things. The, en- the enemies stand in for the enemy capital E, right? Like, if you read all these things as Satan, like, it makes sense. Lest Satan say over me, where is your God? Lest Satan say over me, I have prevailed over you. Like, I won. Like, you thought that Jesus was good? I win, because he's not. And you're not going to trust him and his character anymore. The enemy here could be death. Right? Like, we're dealing, especially before the resurrection of Jesus, you talk about the finality of death, right? Like, yeah, we can sprinkle on the other side of the resurrection as followers of Jesus. We can say, Okay, like, we have a historical reason that isn't always easily activated in our lives, but a historical reason to believe that death is not the end. This, this is, this is on, on the front end of that. Um, and so there might also be like a, really, that's it? That's it. I'm going to die and then that's it? The enemy wins? Apostle Paul calls the last enemy, or calls death the last enemy. That could be what's going on here. Okay, so that's all the weightiness of this, right? And before we get to, to this final turn here, I just want to say, um, if we have never prayed like this, I think by definition, because so many of the Psalms are like this, by definition, there, there is something, there is a gap in, our, in the way that we relate to God. There's a gap. And um, I would imagine there's actually fairly few of us who have prayed this way. Like this, this just doesn't, you go to a prayer meeting, right? Like we don't, we don't do sort of your classic prayer meeting here. But if you've been to many prayer meetings, like very few of them. Dear God, we pray for, you know, such and such as Anne, and we pray for this. And then someone just comes in hot. How long, oh Lord? Right? Like that would be a very interesting prayer meeting. Um, we've done that here. We've done that at our nights of worship and prayer. Um, where we've led you through laments, and man, the room just feels different than anything I think most of us who have been in those rooms have, have ever experienced. But there's something really beautiful in that. That, that same guy, that Brueggemann guy, um, he talks about the, the Psalms basically belong in three seasons of our lives, orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. And he defines orientation as like when everything's great and rosy and sunny and you think the world functions exactly as it should. Like there's Psalms for that. That's a wonderful thing. Live into that. That's okay. At some point, though, you will be disoriented. All of that will fall apart, and you'll say, no, the world doesn't work, and my faith doesn't work the way that it used to. And, and he says that the laments are for that season. Then there's the season of reorientation, where after the fourfold how long, somehow you wake up one day and you go, wait, I'm, I, I'm alive, and I survived this, and like I'm showing up to church, and like there's, there's breath in my lungs. And he says that's called reorientation, he says there's psalms for that. There's psalms that have been, that, 
sound like someone who's been through the pit and has come out of it on the other side, that sounds different than orientation is his point. Reorientation is a different thing than orientation. Here, why do I bring that up? I bring that up because I like that sort of overall schema for the Psalms, but I especially like that I think because most of us don't pray this way, a lot of times we just end up prayerless in seasons of disorientation. Because we think, what, what am I going to pray? Like, what am, what am I going to say to God? God what am I going to say? And the Psalms go, this, this is what you're going to say. There's Psalms for that. We didn't leave that out. We didn't say Christians can only relate to God if everything's sunny and rosy and on the other side of your deepest pain and suffering. He says, no, 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 pray there. Worship there. I think when we hear things like worship in the midst of your pain and it's open your mouth and say things that you may or may not believe in that moment. No, no, no. Worship is open Psalm 13, open Psalm 22. Say things that are divinely mandated as worship and maybe you'll find that tether feels a little bit tighter around you in a good way. Maybe that tether, maybe you feel like, oh wait, okay, <laughs> don't feel like it right now, but I am talking to God. <laughs> I am actually opening my mouth. It's how long, oh Lord, in this. Now, almost every lament, uh, with a couple of notable exceptions, have this turn at the end. But... I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. The most important thing about these two verses grammatically are their verb tenses, are these funky little verb tenses. There's a jussive in here and there's a cohortative in here and that means nothing to you, but it's kind of everything that's going on here. This is, um, the verb tenses here are I have confidence that one day this will be true. I, I, I am vowing that I know that, that I'll get there one day. Right? That's what this sounds like in the midst. But the verbs are also, you can say this on the other side of actually doing it. So the, like, it's just an interesting space that these occupy. So here's what he says. He says, but I have trusted in your... Now, the, the translation that I have is steadfast love. This is that beautiful Old Testament word, chesed. Um, Cheh, uh, that, that wonderful Hebrew letter. Um, chesed, H-E-S-E-D, uh, or with a C in front of it. Chesed, steadfast love, some translate it covenant love. This is, this is the single most important word descriptor of God in the Old Testament. It shows up everywhere. It's the most significant character trait of God is his chesed. His chesed is, and, and all of these translations are struggling to, my favorite definition of hesed is when the person you should expect the least from gives you everything. That's hesed. It's not just like love, super love. It's not, it's not even unconditional love. It's contra-conditional love. It's love that especially shows up in a moment where it's the last thing that you would expect to show up. That's hesed. That's who God is. It says, God, I am trusting that as I open my mouth and lament, that even though it feels to me like you are far, 
even though it feels to me like this prayer might push you further away, I am trusting that chesed is still the most important thing about you. That God at moments... Now, I think what the psalmist is also doing is by saying, I have trusted, he's also looking back at experiences and saying, I've seen your chesed show up in other seasons and in other situations of my life. And so right now I'm looking back and saying, I know it's happened before, and I'm just going to trust that it's going to happen again. That's what the next verse largely means. My heart shall rejoice. That's a future. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. God, I... I'm going I'm to grit my teeth. I'm going to clench my fists and say, God, I, I, I know that your chesed has shown up in the past in my story. And, and, and so I'm going to grit my teeth and say, I, I know that I'm going to trust it through this. Right? You feel far off. But, but I'm going to trust it. And I think one day I'll, I'll open my mouth in, in happy kind of praise again. Because that's all I can do. Right? This, this is Peter saying, where else are we going to go, Lord? Who else has the words of eternal life? You alone. You ever been there? I know that most of you who have been through the darkest thing know exactly what he's talking about here. Martin Luther, the, the reformer, says this. He says that Psalm 13 is helping us articulate that state in which hope despairs and yet despair hopes at the same time. And all that survives is, and now he's quoting Romans 8, the groaning that cannot be uttered, where with the Holy Spirit makes intercession for us, and then he's talking about Genesis 1, brooding over the waters of our own chaos, shrouded in darkness. You hear what he's saying there? He's saying there's a kind of hope that's allowed to despair. Hey, sufferer, do you have hope in Jesus? Your answer is probably like, yes, I do, but can I despair right now? Yes, you can. There's a hope that despairs. There's also a despair that hopes. Yeah, but you're in despair right now. Yeah, but I still have faith. How can that be? I thought you were frustrated with God. Yeah, I know. I am. I thought he was far off. Why are you trusting him? Yeah, I know. My despair is hoping. I don't get it either. And then this is Martin Luther's last line. He says, this dynamic, no one understands who has not tasted it. <laughs> if this all sounds like, ah, you're just weaving something up here. I just heard a lot of acknowledgement over that, right? This no one understands who hasn't tasted it. That's what the psalmist is doing here. Chesed, and then you know what the word for salvation is? This is pretty dope. What the word for salvation is in the Old Testament? Anybody know? Yahweh saves. Yeah, Yeshua. It's Yeshua. You know what that is? That's just casually Jesus' name. Literally, he says here, <laughs> I have trusted in your chesed. My heart shall rejoice in your Yeshua. You can preach that, <laughs> right? Like, um, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. You know what he's saying there? I will sing to the Lord. Again, this future hope. I'll sing again. I'll worship again someday because I am confident. Now, if you go to the many translations of that last line of verse 6, they all are trying to figure out what to do with it because it's a funky little phrase there. Basically, what it's saying is, I will sing to the Lord again because I know he'll do everything that he's supposed to do in this situation. Dealt bountifully makes it sound more like, more flowery and, and lovely. Instead, it's more like, I know he'll vindicate me. I know somehow at the end, I won't look crazy for continuing to trust him, for allowing my hope to despair and allowing my despair to hope. That's what he's saying here. 
Now, we can't not mention the fact that what he specifically says is that he will do this because he will ultimately trust in Yeshua. Guys, we are people, again, Pastor Rich said this last week. Everyone who gets up here will say some version of this. We read the Psalms differently because of Jesus. And as people who live on the other side of the cross, there is all the more reason to trust in Yeshua, to know that there was one who had ultimate reason to hope and yet despaired on our behalf, came and became the worst that we can throw at it, became the enemy, right? Became death. That's what Paul says. He who knew no sin became sin. He went fully into death. And all of the destruction and the pain and the hurt, he took hope and he embraced despair and then out of that despair brought ultimate hope in his resurrection. And so we look back and we say that there are seasons of your life where you say, if Jesus has not been raised, we of all people are most to be pitied. Right? Beautiful... uh, book I read a couple of years ago called Everything Sad is Untrue. Couldn't recommend it more. It's a memoir. Won't tell the whole story, but it's a man who goes through a ton of pain. I'll say that. He just goes through a ton of pain. And there's one point in the book where he says, I was sitting in church and someone said, Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ is coming again. And he said, I realize my story is an absurdity if those words are not true. It's the only way my naive faith, my despairing hope, my hoping despair makes any sense is if Christ has died, like really died, really went into this stuff, really knows what it is to despair, has risen and will come again to make all sad things untrue, to not just end suffering, but to somehow work back the suffering that we have experienced such that every tear we have ever cried retroactively is somehow dried with the very hand of God. And the psalmist says, that's what I'm clinging to. Don't feel like it right now. Doesn't feel all happy. Doesn't feel like God is near, but I'm going to worship him in the midst of it. Because I look back over my shoulder and I see Hesed. And I look forward out in front of me and I said, what... What reason do I have to doubt that it's out ahead of me somehow? Even though I can't put it together how this could possibly end up being God dealing bountifully with me, right? So here's what I want to do. I just want to read a couple lines of this and allow you to turn this into prayer, whatever that means for you. If this is the weirdest thing you've ever been asked to do in church, that's fine. You don't have to do this. But for some of you, I would just ask you to embrace this opportunity, okay? I'm just going to read two lines of this and then give you 30 seconds to a minute to pray back to God, however it specifically lands in your story. Ready? How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me?
How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your Hesed. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Amen.
Here at Jacob's Well, we come to this table every week because we need the grace, the comfort, the forgiveness that is available in Jesus.